I'm nowhere near, that's right, I'm nowhere near as cute as that. I don't know how to follow that. And whenever we do dedications like this, I just, how am I supposed to follow this? Like, I just get up and... So I'll talk about my kids. Uh, Six and a two-year-old who we went through the same process with um, just a little bit ago for both of them. But um, at the back of our house, we have this little wooden kitchenette that, that gets so much use. It's this little wooden kitchenette that has um, like a little, you know, plexiglass open microwave. There's a plastic sink that you can turn and the water comes out. And a little battery powered stove top that you can hit. And then, you know, it gets varying degrees of red. Uh, and, and the kids will sit back there and we've got little plastic forks and knives and they'll cut chops things. And the recent development and the recent mess in our house has been them integrating Play-Doh into this work. And so we're making little Play-Doh burgers or Play-Doh spaghetti, long yellow rolled out pieces. And, uh, and there's all of the kitchen activity, the chopping, the cutting, pot, you know, pots and pans are flying everywhere. And, and like a kitchen with two people working in it, there's argument over who's doing what and who's doing what wrong. And at the end of it, the kids bring and they set out before you a little plate with the imaginary dish that's been prepared whether that's plastic, you know, apple, and then like some other toy that's just kind of apparently the garnish or whatever, or a Play-Doh taco. And here's the thing, for all of the, um, the, the workings, the, uh, the, the, vision, the, the visuals of this being a kitchen, for all the activity, for all of the preparation and work, um, Play-Doh tacos just don't hit the same as the real deal. And, um, and, and I've been thinking about my little kid's kitchenette, uh, all for the past few weeks, in particular, as I've been thinking about both the American church and even in particular uh, collective and where we are, what we're going through and what we're facing. And, and I wonder if in some ways that we might be playing church in kind of the same way. We have all the activity of church. We're doing all the things, the stuff of church, um, but without any of the real like what it actually produces within a community. So we're going through all the motions. We're doing all the church things. And yet at the end, what we have to show for it are, you know, Play-Doh tacos or like this Play-Doh Christianity. And so it makes me just consider where, where does that come from and where is that going? I think the reality is, is that what's nice about the play kitchen is that it's a lot safer than the real thing. You're not working with real knives and real fire, you know, wooden knives and plastic pots and pans. There's a safety that's there that I think a lot of us end up getting a little more, we get comfortable with. That playing church is a lot safer, easier, predictable than actually entering into the thing that it seems like the New Testament talks about and calls us into. And so what is that, that missing piece? What's the difference between playing church and the real deal? I mean, some of you likely, I mean, there's been enough mmms over the past just a few minutes of getting into this that some of you like, you know, seem to resonate with that picture. Maybe you wouldn't use, you know, wooden kitchenettes as your language for it, but some form of playing church, of going through the motions, of going through the rhythms, but not having any of the end results within your life and within the world, the thing that it seems like the book that you're reading talks about. Or maybe for some of you that have been dragged along for, you know, the child dedication today or something like that, that you wouldn't identify as a Christian. And maybe some of that is exactly this dynamic. 
is these people talking all about resurrection power and the life of God in the world through Jesus. And then you spend some time with most Christians and it's, you know, Plato spirituality. So what, what's the culprit? What's the issue behind it all? Billy Graham, the famous American evangelist, said everywhere a few decades ago, everywhere I go, I find that God's people lack something. They're hungry for something. Their Christian experience is not all that they expected and they often have recurring defeat in their lives. Christians today are hungry for spiritual fulfillment. The most desperate need of the nation today is that men and women who profess Jesus be filled with the Holy Spirit. So what in the world does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? What does that look like in a community? How do we pursue that? How do we enter into, expect, and look for that? That is exactly what we're going to be looking at in this new series that we're kicking off today, simply called More. A series that will be two parts. I'll talk about this more in a little bit. Two parts that will take us all the way through the summer of learning what does it mean to recapture this, this language of being filled with the Holy Spirit, what Billy Graham called the most desperate need, that he saw decades ago, and at least it seems like by your mms and ahs, that we even feel within ourselves today. And so for some of you, the moment that I said, be filled with the Holy Spirit, there are some of you right now that you're, oh, all, there's many of you, your heart started beating, but for two different reasons, for two different groups of people. For some of you, be filled with the Holy Spirit is you're like ready to jump out of your chair and run around the room and just like show us all how it's done. And for others of you, you're either looking for the exit or the seatbelt. And so I'll just say, I, I have spent my time in both sides of those different communities over the years and those traditions. And, and what has been always true about Collective will continue to be true. That as we ask about what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit, we're going to allow the Spirit-inspired scriptures to guide us in that. And so this is an invitation. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. How does the scriptures actually talk about this? Apart from either our fear or our just like, exper- like letting experience rule, going, what does it look like for the scriptures to shape an understanding of our most desperate need? So that being said, Acts chapter one is where we're gonna be to get today. Beginning in verse four, if you wanna turn or tap your way there in your Bibles, it'll also be behind me in just a moment. But once you're there, would you join me in standing for the reading of the scriptures this morning? Acts chapter one, beginning in verse four. While he, being Jesus, was with them, being his disciples, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which he said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his authority, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Jesus, would you lead us in in your words that you gave to the disciples here, that we would hear them uh, spoken once again to us today. God, the most desperate need for each of us is... um, God, to move away from this kind of playing Christian uh, to playing church. God, we want a deep, ex- deeper experience of all that you have actually given to us. 
And God, we just, we, I, I just acknowledge right now, what you are inviting our community to is nothing other than exactly what you've promised and given to us. And so we want to receive all that you have for us. And we pray that today would just be um, the beginning of this kind of summer journey in shifting that trajectory of our community. May we become a community that more readily receives and expects and pursues your spirit at work within our lives and in our community. Amen. We'll go and be seated. Well, right back here in verse four, we're obviously jumping into the middle of uh, a little story here. And so today being the week after Easter is actually fitting. We're coming into the story where this is Jesus with his disciples in the weeks, 40 days following his resurrection, that first Easter. And during this time, he's, it says in verse four, uh, staying with them, or he was with them. It's this idea that he's, he's lodging with them. He's staying with them. He's actually, some translations have, he's, he was eating with them. So he's, they've kind of, you know, they got an Airbnb, like somewhere outside of Jerusalem for 40 days. And they're just there talking day and night about what? Well, verse four says, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So Jesus resurrects from the dead, rounds up the disciples, says, hey, we're going to go out and, and I'm going to sit down with you. We're going to lodge together. And in the morning when you wake up, I'm gonna, we're going to be talking about the kingdom of God. Over lunch, we're going to be talking about the kingdom of God. We're going to go for a walk or take a nap. But when you come back at dinner time, I'm going to be talking about the kingdom of God. I'm going to be talking about this new reign of God kicked off and inaugurated through my death and my resurrection that this new rule and reign of God is at work in, this, in the world. And so that's what Jesus is talking about with his disciples. When they rise, when they go to bed, Jesus is just talking about the kingdom with them. But for Jesus, he can't talk very long about the kingdom without talking about, as the story progresses, the Holy Spirit. Now, as a quick note, before we get into the text of what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit, um, how do we define the Holy Spirit? Well, the first is to acknowledge that the Holy Spirit is not an it or thing, but, but a person. Gordon Fee, a New Testament scholar, defines the Holy Spirit that I'll be using regularly over these uh, coming weeks and months as just simply to say the Holy Spirit is God's empowering presence. It is God's person. It is God. It is God. It is not something of God, but God himself. And the way that he works and power is in the world. And it's his, it's his presence. It is him with us. It is God's empowering presence. And even there, notice what I just did. I said it. He is God's empowering presence. It's so easy for us because of our you know, late stage understanding of what spirit would mean. A spirit can't be a he. It's always an it or a thing. And yet, throughout the scriptures, we see that the Holy Spirit is a person, God's person, God's presence, God's power in the world. Who Jesus describes in verse four as the Father's promise. The Holy Spirit is the Father's promise. Jesus here is picking up on a theme that runs all the way through the first half of the Bible, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. And that is whereas at certain points, at certain times, for certain individuals, the Holy Spirit will fall and indwell and empower a person for a particular work, it then goes away after the work is done, after the thing is accomplished. 
And so as the prophets looked forward to the, the, when the Messiah, when, when Jesus would come, when they looked forward to the arrival of the kingdom of God, they talked about it in Joel and Ezekiel and Isaiah as, as a time coming when the whole God's spirit would fall on not just some individuals some of the time, but all of humanity for now all of time. The Holy Spirit would bring a new heart and a new life, an ability for obedience and faithfulness to Jesus and justice and righteousness and, and, and an understanding of, of the will and work of God in the world that there was up to that point only shared by some of the prophets. And so that connected to there being these gifts of the Holy Spirit that Joel talks about of, of prophesying and visions and dreams and healing. This is all what they're going when Jesus they wouldn't have the name for him yet, but when the Messiah comes, when the kingdom of God comes, that power that we only saw in a couple of people throughout the Old Testament is going to fall on all of God's people for all of time. It's the Father's promise. Jesus connects to the disciples by saying, not only did you guys read about this in the Old Testament, when I started my ministry, baptized by John the Baptist, you heard God promising it through John the Baptist prophesying. That's what he says at the end of verse five, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. He says, guys, this wasn't just what you heard in Sunday school. A few years ago, remember when my ministry kicked off, you, you sat on the shore and you heard John the Baptist say this, Luke chapter two, three, excuse me. John the Baptist answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but one is more powerful than I am is coming. I'm not worthy to untie his shoes. I baptize just with water. He is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now what this doesn't mean is Jesus is saying that we've moved away from baptism into water as a sign of allegiance and faith in Jesus. It's what Jesus has commanded us to do. It's the first step of faith in Jesus is baptism. And so for some of you, maybe over the past few weeks, or months, that's been your story of coming to faith to Jesus, but you have not yet been baptized. That is the invitation. What John's doing here is not saying, we don't do water baptism anymore. What he says is, John the Baptist understood himself as the headliner. He's, or excuse me, the opening act for the headliner. I got those turned around. John the Baptist understood himself as the opening act, the water baptism for the headliner, Jesus, who would come and baptize, saturate, immerse his people, not just into the Jordan River, but into God himself, into the presence and power of God himself. So it's the Father's promise, Jesus says. The Holy Spirit is the Father's promise. And Jesus says, it's my promise. Back in the beginning of verse uh, in the middle of, or towards the end of verse four, he said, the father's promise, which he said, you have heard me speak about. All throughout the gospels, when Matthew, Mark, Luke, John are recounting the teachings and life of Jesus, Jesus is just dropping these little spirit nuggets all over the place of these little, these little lines that he's dropping of, of this, when the spirit comes, when the spirit comes, when the spirit comes, but then in John 14 through 16 is the longest kind of moment Then Jesus unpacks what is going to happen when the Spirit comes. He says, when, I, when the Spirit comes, he calls him the comforter, the helper, the counselor. When he comes, he's going to remind you and teach you everything that I've said. He's going to take the righteousness, the authority, the power, the, the identity as, child, as son of God from me and give it to you. 
through the Holy Spirit, he's going to be testifying about me as you testify about me. And then Jesus says, through when the Holy Spirit comes, you, my disciples, are going to do greater works than I did. Ooh, the Holy Spirit came. <laughs> it was like tongues of fire and a rushing wind. And those were the wind chimes. Uh, so Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes, you're going to do greater works than I. Talking about right now, right here, the Spirit is at work through, Jesus says, me, one person in one place in one moment of time. But when the Holy Spirit comes on all of y'all, you will do greater in quantity works because y'all are going to be all over the face of the earth in places that one person cannot be at all times. And so he says the Holy Spirit is coming. He's going to empower. He just, he basically recaptures, rephrases exactly what the Old Testament prophets had promised from the Father. The Holy Spirit is going to come to be in you and with you and work through you. And so just notice a couple of things here about the Holy Spirit. One is just notice the Trinitarian like nature here. Trinitarian, that God is three persons, one God. And here you have the Father promising the Spirit, the Son promising the Spirit, the Spirit being distinct from the Father and the Son, and the Father and the Son in this passage being distinct from one another. So that's just, you know, a whole other thing. But more to the point of right here and right now, is notice that for Jesus, when he talks about the kingdom of God, the Holy Spirit is not an optional side, is not a garnish on the work of the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit is not the well-done fries on the secret menu at In-N-Out. That's like, if for the really emotional, for the really, those in the supernatural, for the really whatever you may think, it is part and parcel of the kingdom of God arriving here within the world. Which leads the disciples to ask in verse six. So when they had come together, they asked Jesus, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? Which for us feels left field, right? But for this moment in time, this makes total sense. Jesus in verse three, what's he been talking about? The kingdom of God. Verses four and five, he's been talking about the evidences of the kingdom of God, the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is a Jew, the Jewish Messiah, come from Israel and they're kicking it around Jerusalem. And so they are putting all the pieces together and they go, hmm, you know what it looks like? It looks right here, right now is the moment that the kingdom of God is gonna be fully consummated, that it's fully going to arrive. In the language of my kids in the back seat, Jesus is saying all of this and they're going, are we there yet? And so what does Jesus say? Verse seven, he says two things. First in verse seven, he says, no, not yet. Verse seven, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the periods that the father has set by his authority. So they're asking the questions of, are we there yet? Is right now the time? It's the question of when is the kingdom? And Jesus says, well, it's not fully arrived yet. It's not fully consummated. In fact, that's above your pay grade. Don't, don't worry about the, the questions of when. There's a lot of like huckster preachers that would do really well to remember this passage. Jesus to the 12 disciples that are going to become the apostles Jesus goes, you guys don't need to worry about the when. And then such and such from like Texas or whatever gets on the TV and he's got the prophecy of when it's going to happen. It's like, okay, yeah, you, you beat Peter, didn't you? You, you, got, you know what's going on. No, Jesus says, okay, they've got their attention on the question of when. At this time, are you restoring the kingdom? Last week, our Easter sermon, the Kintsugi picture. Are you putting everything together fully and forever now? And Jesus goes, 
You're asking the question of when, and I'm saying it's not now. But what does he do as he continues in verse 7, or excuse me, in verse 8? So he says, no, not yet. But in verse 8, he goes, yeah, already. It's right here. Verse 8, and, or just, or but, but is what it says, but it can be just and. You will receive, or yet, yet you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will all be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, all Samaria, to the ends of the earth. They're asking the questions of when of the kingdom, and Jesus wants them to look at the what, the who, and the where of the kingdom. So first, the who is you guys. You, you little disciples here, fishermen's, rehabilitated tax collectors. Peter's over there. It's like, this is the guy that betrayed me multiple times and cut a guy's ear off. There's a wide range of people. And he goes, you, messy, ordinary disciples, will be my what? Witnesses. What does it mean to be a witness of Jesus? Luke 24 is a parallel to what we're reading in Acts. Jesus says this. This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead the third day. And repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And look, I'm sending you what my father promised for you. Stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. You are witnesses of Jesus, which in Luke is these things. Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, Repentance for the forgiveness of sins, redemption, the arrival of the kingdom. To be a witness, Jesus would say, is to show through your life, your character, your actions, and to tell in word the arrival of the kingdom that's been inaugurated through the work of Jesus Christ. That forgiveness in the midst of shame and failure and fault is available. That new life in the midst of stuck places and death is available. That you, as you move into the world, bringing righteousness and justice and life and joy and peace and self-control are showing what that kingdom looks like, but also by witnessing, talking about it to other people. You're not just a billboard through your actions. You are a herald of the arrival of the kingdom. You are a witness. And so collective church, the question is not, is this your vocation? But, like Jonah, have you run from your post? You... To be a disciple of Jesus is to be a witness of Jesus, to show and tell the arrival of the kingdom of God. Well, Jesus puts it into three categories. He says, Jerusalem, and then he zooms out to Judea and Samaria, and then he zooms out again to the ends of the earth. Jesus says, I've called you to be my witnesses. First, one way to look at this is across geographic places. I'm calling you to spread out over all of the world, bringing and showing and telling that the arrival of the kingdom of God is here. This isn't just for Israel and Jerusalem like you guys think. It's for all the way to the ends of the earth. But more than just geographical, which is often how this gets read, it's also ethnic and political. In going out of Israel and Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria, the disciples are being called by Jesus to transcend, to move through ethnic Boundaries, especially as we move to the ends of the earth. And more than that, it's also political. We move from the political 
allegiances of the faithful Israelites in Jerusalem outward to Judea and Samaria and then outwards into big bad Rome. If Jesus is king over all of creation, redeeming and restoring all of creation, then as witnesses to show and tell, then that means that you don't just stick around with the people that look like you, think like you, or might even vote like you. If Jesus is king over all the earth, then there's no, there is no corner geographically of the globe that Jesus does not hold claim over. If Jesus is king over all tribes and tongues and nations, then there is not any people group that we're able to keep ourselves from and we go, it's for us, but not for them. And politically, as you're going to see in the book of Acts develop, then what that means is that even for those that would call me my enemy or I would call them my enemy, Jesus is the reigning and ruling, resurrected and forgiving king who calls for allegiance from everyone. And so this isn't just something for the people on the left to think they have together, and then the right, those, they're just, you know, that's, you know, hell in a handbasket, or vice versa, on the other side, which is often what happens in our nation right now. It's so funny that we go, the geographic, I think the church is killing it at sending people all over the world to show and tell the gospel. What we stink at is moving beyond ethnic and political allegiances and lines to bring the kingdom of Jesus to bear. And in fact, as we do that, and like allegiance and life with one another is made, it is the testimony to the fact that Jesus is truly king over all people. So the question then is, if we've got this regional focus of moving beyond geographic, ethnic, and political lines, to bring it to us, the question is, what brought you to L.A.? If I had to ask it, I'd, I'd get a different answer for every single one of you. It's industry, it's work, it's the weather, it's this or that. This is the thing that brought me to L.A. For like the rare few of you, you're like, yeah, I was born and raised here. Like that's, there's like three of you. There they are. I'll sway in the back. Uh. And so we would give all of these reasons. And yet, based off this passage, and one more we're going to look at in a second, Acts 17, oh, let there be light. Um, I didn't even realize that went off until just now. Uh, so you ask the question, why are you in LA? It's industry, it's work, you're here for a season. Acts chapter 17, Paul's preaching and he says this, that God has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. And he did this so they might seek God and perhaps they might reach and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. You're alive during 2023. You've lived through 2020, 2021. I'm sorry. And yet at the same time, Jesus would go, yeah, I've uniquely called you and set you in this moment in time to go to the, the phrase used of Esther for such a time as this. This season, this moment of division and anxiety and loss and confusion and theological questions you can't get your head around and deconstruction and the church, like what you fill in all of the things of this moment and you would go, man, I'd be great to live at some other time. Acts 17, Paul would say, for such a time as this, you've been called and placed in this place to testify and witness to those around you. And similarly, the boundaries where you live. God gave you your zip code. You may say you live where you live because it's like the one place you could afford on all of the west side. 
And you're like, and I, I still don't think I can afford it. Jesus would say, no, I, 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 I placed you there. Jesus would say, I, you may not know them, but I know your neighbor and your neighbor. I know the elderly woman that lives across the hall. I know the like, you know, goth techie millennial that lives across the street. I know the family down over there. I know your mailman. I know the barista at the coffee shop down the corner. And my desire is that they might reach out and find me because I am so close to them. And the primary means of how I'm going to be close to them is through my people. And so you live where you live because I've set you there to witness, to show and tell. And even thinking about bringing together the appointed times and the appointed boundaries of where they live. I don't know how long you're going to be in Los Angeles. I know it's a transient city. But for the time that you're here, do you receive that as something that God has placed you in this moment, this time, this place? Or are you just kind of gritting to get through it? So you're called to witness. You're called to show and tell, not just to experience, but to receive and encounter Jesus, and share that with the city around you. This is such a wildly different view of, of, well, I'll just say this. For most of us, we, most of you would agree with me right now. Like, yeah, we're called to that. And yet there's a pretty good amount of apprehension, apathy towards this work because it feels impossible, or it feels very difficult at least. You know, on one end, there's just like the normal, like, you know, difficulty of, of talking with people about things of faith and Jesus. And at the other end, you're like kind of like terrified that you're going to get like canceled on Twitter. But Twitter is gone now too. So, hey, go for it, actually. You know, <laughs> we're fine. There's this range of like, it's impossible, my stage of life, living in the city. I feel like people in the city... Um, because of the transients, are so set apart from one another. And so to have a deep, long relationship with someone is like, I don't know how long I'm going to have with them. And so I, I don't want to like come too quick and like scare somebody off with Jesus stuff, but I also don't know how long I'm going to have with them. And so it all gets like super terrifying like that. And so what does Jesus say? It feels like it's in the impossible mission. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. The word power here can be translated as strength, but regularly it's used just to talk about, we think of power as like Superman, Power, the word is just, you'll receive ability. You'll be my witnesses. You will receive the ability to be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit has come on you. So it's through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's work within you and through you to show and tell, to testify about the work of Jesus in your life so that others might be brought into all of this. So here, based off this, the Holy Spirit just to set this out as we get started in a whole series on our summer in the spirit, the Holy Spirit is not here to entertain you. The Holy Spirit is not meant just to simply be an emotional excitement for you. As though the Holy Spirit is like something that you would like list on the church's like Yelp page, like reviews. You're scrolling through the reviews and you're like, oh, they've got coffee and donuts. (laughs) Neighborhood dinners. Regional serving model, maybe, you know. What's this at the bottom? Holy Spirit, power, and fire. This sounds like the church for me. Okay. No. The Holy Spirit is the very ability for the church to be the church. And the Holy Spirit, again, is not for excitement 
or your enjoyment or your simply your experience, but right here, empowerment for evangelism. With all of our talk within the church right now about awakening and revival and fresh moves of the spirit, do not miss this. You're gonna be hearing a lot about this over the coming weeks. Do not miss this. The purpose of the Holy Spirit is to empower you for the mission of God in the world. Like, this is what he wants to do within you. So, you amen this, and here's the thing to set before us that I've been chewing on all week. The lack of baptisms in our church in this season is a symptom of the lack of the work of the Holy Spirit in our church in this season. Now, some of it's like, yeah, COVID, we're coming out of it totally. Some of it is like the work of what our church is doing is we're largely becoming a place that's like keeping Christians from deconstructing right now. I'm totally here for that. that those things, though, are not the calling of the church. They are, but the primary thing is go into all the world, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. So that, and if the Holy Spirit is the one that empowers and sends us out to witness into the world to bring people into that family community, and the fact that we haven't seen much of that in this community for a season says less about the city and more about us. And I would say for some of us, our apathy towards the mission of God and evangelism and witnessing is an apathy towards God himself. There's this thing that they always talk about whenever I'm doing, they, that I regularly talk about whenever I'm doing preparing for marriage, like counseling stuff with folks in our church, is every couple, in order for the marriage to last, they, they have to have something that they're united around and towards other than just each other. Like as if the marriage is just for us, like that, that, that's just not a strong enough purpose and meaning to carry it because as soon as you go through tiffs and have moments of difficulty, then the whole thing begins to fall apart. But if there's a mission, a calling for that couple, for that marriage, then it, it becomes a source of weathering through it all. And so in the same way, there is a level where, yes, the Holy Spirit comes to fill you with the assurance of God. Yes, the Holy Spirit comes to fill you up with the Holy Spirit of God, with a deeper, richer experience of God's presence and life within you. Want, yes, and amen. He builds up the church. Yes, and amen. So that you can show and tell all of that to the world and the city around you. And so... The question then that we're going to be looking at over the summer is what does this look like when this is experienced and seen within a community? The hope is that this series, what we're doing over the summer, is not going to be a series of talks or discussions and conversations in your discipleship groups, but a, a moment of my prayer, God have mercy, a moment of delineation in the life of our church community. I like, I was saying a after more and before more, but then I, the acronym was BM and that felt uncomfortable. And so... <laughs> I don't know what, but a moment of delineation, a, a space of where we look back and we go, man, God was at work and was so faithful to our community, but we were playing with Play-Doh. And, and, and to look at where God is taking us and our expectation and our leaning into it and go, man, this is what it means for Jesus to be the church because here's the reality. Here's the reality. The church was made for expansive growth and the American church is facing expansive decline. The global church is killing it right now, making us look like we're just sitting around because we largely are. But 
The global church is doing one incredible right now. Incredible right now. But as we're facing a moment of decline within the church of the West, you have, you have two options before you, follower of Jesus, and that is survival or revival. You can either continue playing church, straightening the furniture on the Titanic, handing off a, a church to the next generation that we're like, yeah, I don't, you know, it's kind of a beater. We did the best that, you know, have fun. Or in the words of Rachel, who's on slides today, her shirt, leave it better than you found it. To take the church for all that we've gotten from it, from all of the story and the mess and everything about the American church up to this point and go, yeah, that's part of the story. Yeah, there's purity culture stuff. Yeah, there's all of these things that need to be deconstructed and dropped off and left behind. But not just for the sake of then feeling like I'm morally superior to every Christian who came before me, but so the sake that the Holy Spirit is able to utilize and breathe new life into the church. So yeah, let's look at all of that stuff, but not for the sake of just scoffing and, and throwing up our noses at it so that we have a church that our own experience, what we're inviting our neighbors into and handing off to the kids we just dedicated today is a church that's vibrant and breathing and alive again. So the options are survival or revival. What does it look like when revival comes? Two-part series. First is part two, what we're gonna do later on this summer which we're calling walking by the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit indwells a people, there is a passion for Scripture. There is the fruit of the Spirit. There is a transformation of the way that you live and talk, or as Paul would say, walk. You walk, you live by the Holy Spirit. You become a new sort of person, shaped. A community becomes a new kind of people of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, thankfulness, self-control. And so this is part two, but we're waiting for, to get to this because one, by God's grace, I do think a lot of this, many of you are carrying and working out right now. And, and also without the first part, this can become moralism and legalism. And so that's why part one, what we're starting today is waiting on the Holy Spirit. Waiting on the Holy Spirit. Where we're gonna be looking at a desire for hunger and passion for the work of Jesus that shows up and comes to the church specifically in the gifts of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is one place where these are outlined in Scripture for us. Paul says, Now there are different gifts but the same Spirit. There are different ministries but the same Lord. Different activities but the same God works all of them in each person. Manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. To one is given a message of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, a message of knowledge by the Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the performing of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, different kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of those tongues. One in the same Spirit is active in all these, distributing to each person as he wills. Now, for some of you, like I said a moment ago, you're like ready to jump in and run around the room when you hear that list. And for others of you, you're like, what in the world? And so once again, we're entering into a process of finding how does the scripture define these? How do we enter into these? How do we step into all that the Father and Jesus has promised for us? But first, as the title of the series denotes, it will require that we wait. In verse four, when Jesus was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait, to wait 
for the Father's promise. You ever wondered why, maybe this is me this week, or maybe for those of you that have read the passage already as the weekly Bible passage, why did Jesus make him wait? Why didn't he like, you guys are going to be my witnesses to all the ends of the earth. It's going to be wild. It's going to be crazy. All of you but one are going to die. So, Holy Spirit, right now, you know, tongues of fire speaking, right? Why does God, why does Jesus make him wait? Church father Chrysostom, writing just a couple hundred years after this happened, wrote, it was necessary for them to have a longing for the event and so receive the grace. Our desire toward God is most awakened when we stand in need. This is when you look at awakenings, revivals, moves of God throughout history. We want to go, oh, it's this theological thing, or it's this song, or it's this sermon series, or it's this celebrity, or it's this, the electric guitar, or it's these fog machines, or these lights, or whatever. And... John Tyson, he's a pastor based out of New York. They just did a whole series earlier this year specifically on this entitled God Comes Where He's Wanted. The unifying theme of revival and awakening and outpouring both in an individual life and in a community is God comes with those who wait. Not not twiddling their thumbs, not, you know, candy crush, like whenever you're ready. Waiting is the posture of desperation and hunger. That I am right here and I, there is nothing else that's going to give me the thing that I need and I want and you've even promised for me. And so until I get that, I am going to sit here and ask and ask and ask until you give it. First, just look at this, a couple of you, uh, verses over. 1 Corinthians 1, 4, he says, wait. How do they apply this? Verse 14. They gathered together and they were continually united in prayer along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. They gather up in the upper room. Jesus says, wait, and they go, okay, we're gonna watch this new show. And so whenever it gets here, like Amazon Prime, we'll just keep an ear out for the doorbell. No, continually united in prayer, petition, calling on God. God, you promised power to do the work that you've called us you. You have promised a church expanding rapidly within a world that's antagonistic toward it. And we can find no other way to do it other than a power outside of us now residing within us. And so God, we are all here continually united asking you, pour out that same kingdom that you say will come in the future. Give us a piece of it right here, right now, so we can accomplish the work that you've given us. I talked about my kid's play kitchen at the end, or at the beginning, and so as we wrap up, I'll talk about the real kitchen in our house with real gas and knives and stuff. And whenever I'm preparing dinner, usually at some point, one or both of our kids will get so hungry. And it's just like the timing doesn't work out. And so they, Dad, is it time yet? I'm hungry. Or Arlo is just, you know, he's, duh. He's two. Duh. What? Duh. Dinner? Huh. Uh. He's, a little, he's a little drunk caveman. And, um, and so here's the thing. It's like, man, I don't tell them like, well, I've got to, you know, we're going to do saute, finish sauteing this. The rice is in the cooker. It's got about 10 minutes left. So you think you can give me about 12, 15 minutes? No. I just go, not yet. Not yet, bud. It's, it's cooking. It's coming. It's coming. Not yet. And so 
if they're really hungry, they don't, they don't leave. If they're so hungry to the point that they can't wait for the table to be set, they stand at me, can I have a bite? One chip? Can I have just a chip? Just, just a couple chips. You know, like throw the bag of chips on the table and let them just like, and then they're gone by the time they, the rest of the meal's made. Or Arlo will come up when I'm making spaghetti. A oodle. <laughs> he goes, one oodle. Just one noodle. And I'm like, oh yeah, totally, dude. I would, nothing, yeah, yeah, you're so hungry. I'm not gonna make you sit and wait. So I, you know, I don't know why to put my hand in the boiling water. I get the, <laughs> I get the appropriate utensil. And I get, the noodle out, or I, I, you know, if it's, uh, you know, piece of, it's the bread, or it's the, and, and the butter that we set down on the table, or it's, it's the, you know, care, there's some piece of the meal that's still coming together, and yet I will gladly take a portion out of what's coming to set it on the table for my kids that are going, we're so hungry, we can't wait. And this is the posture. This is what revival and awakening is in the life of the church. When God takes the restoration of the kingdom that's coming at the end of time and for his kids who are hungry for it now and won't go anywhere else or be distracted by what's on TV and what's going on in there and go, the only thing that's, I, I'm, if I don't have an oodle, I'm gonna die. Like that level of desperation that the father goes, well, yeah, this is my promise for you. This is exactly what I want. So of course, I will set down the appetizer for you to start dining on and enjoying and satiating that deep hunger that is not going to be solved, yes, until new creation. But man, let's fill you up with something right now and send you back into the world to play. This is it. And so continually united in prayer is the just a noodle. Just a noodle, dada. Father, give us just one bite, one piece, one drop of what you're going to do in new creation right here and right now, that healing and life and provision and showing and telling the gospel and forgiveness within a community and empowerment to be a new kind of person to this kind of world and the boldness and courage to take that out to others. Just one right now, God. And it's prayer is the practice of waiting. And so we have a prayer night tonight. Which again, for me, as one of the pastors here, has always been, similar to the baptism note a while ago, has been always for me the barometer and the indicator of the hunger of our church. For those of you that haven't been, there's not many people there very regularly. So are you hungry? Have you reached the point where you're tired of playing church and you're looking for the, the actual power that makes the, you able to be the Christian you were called to be, the follower of Jesus that you were called to be, and the church to be the church that it came to be. The prayer night is the, the one monthly time that we gather together and we say, God, just give us one little, one little taste of what's coming. And I get, I, I understand specifically for, we just dedicated parents, I understand right now we are unable to provide childcare for this because there's just not enough people there. And so for some of you, I don't hear this as shame or me trying to like guilt trip anybody here, but just to go, are you hungry? To the point of desperation, to the point that anything else on Sunday night, would, once a month, goes, I, the most important thing for me on this time, on this point of the month, is for me to sit with my brothers and sisters, my spiritual family, and say, God, would you give us a taste of the kingdom here and now? 
And so part of that is we have our prayer night tonight, as Lorenzo talked about. But then as our practice for this series, we usually have some kind of corresponding actual practice where we put this series into practice. And it's, you really can't go, go do prophecy, go do tongues. Like that's, that is a work of the spirit within each individual and differing gifts as 1 Corinthians 12 said. But the one thing all of us can do is 1 Corinthians, or Acts 1.14. We can be continually united in prayer. And so the practice for this series at collectivechurch.com slash current series is a daily prayer prompt. Simple prayer, simple scripture that we're asking all of you. you I know no one's gonna do it perfectly. None of us are gonna every single day. But as you can, prioritize once a day, saying just a few minutes to pray through those prompts. For some of you that want to take that up a notch to, to fast one meal a day alongside that or one day a week alongside that. But again, it's to build up that hunger, that desperation, that, that undistractableness that says, God, just give us one taste of what's coming here in the present. And so as we move into our time of response today, I just want you to take an inventory of your own experience of, of following Jesus and of the church. For some of you, 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 you 100% feel that as you look over your experience of the church, it's like, I, I feel like I'm, 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 in the, 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 I'm playing in the kitchenette, making an offering food that doesn't actually do anything. And so I just, I'm going through the rhythms and I'm beginning to get pretty tired with it. It might be safer than the alternative, but I... I'm actually very hungry for an actual meal. For some of you, you may be there. For some of you, today's message has felt like a door being opened on something in your heart that you've been trying to name for some time. Some invitation of, of you, you, you're, you, you haven't been playing church and yet you have been this, there, is, there has to be more to this than what I'm actively living within. Because as I look into the scriptures and then I look at my life and my experience of the faith and the church, I, there's, there's a gap here that fills me with so much longing to see those met. Both in my life, but also in, in the life of our church. For some of us, I, I want you to, to name that gap to hold that before God in a place of hunger. God, fill that in with your spirit. And then for some of you, you, you were brought for the child dedication, or you, you yelped your way on in here today and found us on Google. We are so, well, so happy that you're here today. And you're like, I don't know what I just walked into. I, w- I just want to invite you today to hear, I don't know what your experience of the church has been. I don't know what your experience of Christians has been. I'm willing to bet that most of the reasons why you're still having a hard time with the Jesus thing largely has to do with every time you're around them, you feel like they're talking about all of this resurrection power and then they're offering you Play-Doh. And I wanna invite you today that there is a God that is at work in this world through his Holy Spirit, God's person, God's presence, and God's power inviting you into this kingdom that is here, now, available, and at work.